Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Breaches and ransomware attacks are happening at such a breakneck pace these days. Cybersecurity professionals must feel like they have little time to catch their breath. The job has become so challenging and complex that the work of safeguarding assets and protecting against vulnerabilities is increasingly starting earlier, when developers are first building software and applications. This move to developer-first security is an extension of the broader shift known as DevOps, now practically the industry standard, in which the once-siloed worlds of development and operations work together to build and iterate at a much faster and productive pace, hence the expanded term DevSecOps. SNCC, a leading platform provider of developer-first security tools, is one of the companies driving this approach. And today we are super excited to have its co-founder, chairman, and president, Guy Prajarni, joining us on the podcast. Guy previously served as the CTO of Akamai after selling his first startup, a web performance venture called Blaze.io, to the company. Earlier in his career, he built web application security products at startups, as well as at IBM. He co-founded SNCC back in 2015, along with Asaf Hefetz and Danny Grander. Guy stepped down from the CE role in 2019, moving aside as veteran software executive and SNCC board member and investor Peter McKay took the day-to-day management reins. SNCC has been growing at a torrid clip of late, going from less than 100 employees a few years ago to just under 1,000 nowadays. Last year, it raised more than $800 million in new and secondary funding, bringing its total raise to $1.4 billion, with its valuation jumping to $8.5 billion. In his spare time, Guy hosts his own podcast, The Secure Developer. Guy, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about SNCC, what you do, and what is the problem you're trying to solve? Sure. So SNCC is a developer-first security company. Our view is that as the world goes towards being more digital, being more DevOps-minded, it relies on these independent teams that are able to move fast and wait for nobody so that you can speed up that iteration from like writing a line of code to getting it to a customer, to adapting to what the customer did and, and going back. There's a lot of studies that already demonstrate the business value of that. That's the way the world is going. And security as an industry hasn't really come along for the ride, <laughs> has stayed fairly centralized for a variety of reasons and quickly becomes, as organizations embrace DevOps and kind of modern development, quickly becomes the bottleneck that is either worked around or a slowdown factor. We believe that it cannot continue. It's security going against the grain of the business and that fundamentally to get security to work well in this fast-paced DevOps world, you have to get developers to embrace security. And we founded Sneak really to tackle that, to create developer tools that tackle security that feel natural and delightful for developers to use. You've talked before about SNCC being a developer tools, developer first company, and made the distinction it not being a cybersecurity company. How important is that distinction? It's been night and day, to be honest. The notion of shift left, the notion of having security run earlier in the process is not a new concept. I've personally built AppSec tools back in 2002 and was saying shift left. But at the time, it was always seen as this sort of optimization that needs to run earlier. What myself and others in the industry have been doing is really take auditor tools and try to kind of bolt them on 
to development environment, run them in a build or run them in an IDE. What we never really stopped to consider is the use case, is the persona and the person involved that is different, that their worldview is different. And once you sort of peel that layer, you actually find a lot of differences between developers and security. Embracing the dev side led to an entirely different company, different go-to-market, different branding, and of course, different product and different UX with key distinctions between how you would build it for a security person, for an auditor to just sort of run early in the process versus how you would build it for a developer. At the risk of rambling here a little bit, I'll give you a couple of examples. Probably the core example is that developers like depth while security people need breadth. So if I develop in JavaScript, I couldn't care less if you support PHP or not. This is not a cynical comment. It's just the fact that if I code in JavaScript, it has no bearing on me whether the tool in question supports another language. I work and I live in this language. Really, as a developer, I want depth. And the tools in the developer tooling ecosystem, they have evolved that the best tools are really amazing at those specific stacks. You look at Heroku, you look at New Relic, they started and stayed in Ruby land for many years. Those examples repeat themselves all the time. While security people need breadth, security people are faced with a fragmented world of risk. And that already had a lot of different types of risks and is already hard to wrangle. It's not practical, it's not possible for them to have every director of engineering use a different tool to say, secure their use of open source or find vulnerabilities in their code. They need a tool to be able to support the majority of the stacks in their organization to make it usable for them, to make it practical. That's a key distinction between dev and security. In turn, it drives a whole bunch of differences between what dev tooling companies look like and security ones. Like for instance, Practically all dev tooling companies that are successful are product-led and self-serve because the decision is the resolution of a team and works on a specific stack and the successful ones are bottom-up. They build that way while practically no enterprise security company is product-led because the decisions tend to be broad. They tend to require a mandate that covers more of the organization and those are bigger decisions. There's just a million, million differences. And so with Sneak, I think the achievement that we've had is being able to implement the security solutions, provide the security capabilities, but build them constantly modeled after how dev tools work, focusing primarily on getting dev adoption. What sparked the idea? You were an entrepreneur earlier working in product and then developing your first startup, Blaze.io, and you sold it to Akamai, I think around 2012, you were at Akamai for a few years before co-founding SNCC. Yeah, it's a fair bit the culmination of my journeys. So I spent about a decade in the world of AppSec, working for a company called Sanctum. They got acquired by WatchFire, they got acquired by IBM, and building application security products that find vulnerabilities in code, mostly dynamic and static and web app firewalls. We were saying shift left even back then. In fact, IBM Rational is the one that acquired WatchFire. They were building dev tools and they wanted security in it. But as I was mentioning before, in practice, we were building auditor tools and giving them to developers. And so we were successful selling them to security people and not really to developers. And for me, I left security. So Blaze.io that you mentioned and that was acquired by Akamai, 
that was in the performance world and it happened during the rise of DevOps. That was a part of the programming committee of Velocity, which is the conference, one of the key ones that played a leadership role in getting DevOps off the ground and was very close to the disruption that DevOps has created in the world of operations and performance where I was living. And I learned a lot from it. Fundamentally, when I decided to do another startup, leave Akamai and, and found another startup, the notion or the idea of Sneak was the culmination of those journeys. It was taking what I've learned in this era of DevOps that you have to think about developers first, you have to think about software teams first, you have to think about this brand new way of developing software, and that we have a playbook now for how to do that successfully, that we have role models of how to build great dev tools, great DevOps tools, and taking that and bringing it to security. The idea itself literally came to me in the shower, <laughs> but in practice, it's the culmination of these two journeys that really brought it together. Right. I know before you went into the private sector, you spent a few years in the military, in the IDF, military intelligence. Was there anything from your experience there that contributed to your approach or your vision for SNCC? I think there's kind of two lenses to it. Personally, I spent about five years in the Israeli army, sort of an extended version of the mandatory service there. And during that time, I think the primary thing I took beyond some technological skills is really this approach of everything is possible. There's a lot of, what do you mean you can't do it? Figure out a way type of mentality. That's a very healthy sentiment to have when you're an entrepreneur, to just figure out what needs to happen and then find out how to make it happen versus starting from what is possible. A bit closer to Sneak is the network. I'm this Israeli-Canadian Brit. I was kind of born and raised in Israel in an Argentinian household and then lived a decade in Canada and then moved to the UK where I live now. I founded Sneak while living in the UK with co-founders in Israel, Danny and Asaf. And really at Sneak, from the beginning, we were very set to not create an us versus them mentality in the company between the branches. And yet we were keen to tap on one hand into the great talent pool that we had the network of security professionals and deep technologists that we had coming out of the Israeli army. And on the other side, this sort of great network of product discipline and UX mindfulness and developer thought leadership that existed in London, especially in my circles, more from the performance world and conference circles. We've decided that no team will be co-located. Although we started the company by building out the company in both London and Tel Aviv, there wasn't a Tel Aviv team and a London team. When there were two teams, they were both split with some people here and some people there. And on one hand, that has definitely helped us scale the organization and hire remote people and is particularly helpful in terms of cultural model in the pandemic days and the remote work. But even prior to that, I think it merged this tendency for an everything is possible, fearless and security minded skill set from Israel with a certain product discipline and focus on the user that are actually much harder to find in the Israeli startup ecosystem, uh, but that are more prevalent in London. Interesting. You talked already about the bottoms-up approach, and in some ways that's been sort of the business model, right? Offering the product to developers initially for free and then having a freemium model that then builds up to the paid version. How did you decide at what point to introduce that paid option? Were you confident it would work? Yeah, the intent was always to also have a paid version. Obviously, we were a for-profit company. When you think about product-led organizations, you have to be self-serve. And then if you're self-serve, there are kind of two tracks. There's the free trial and freemium. So if you think about freemium, 
sometimes people think about features. They say, well, my free tier will provide, you know, these and those capabilities, or they would allow, you know, functionality up to five people, right? Or up to three projects. I find that to be the wrong way to approach it. I think you really want to think in use cases. So you want to say who could benefit from the free tier and should continue to stay free and for what purposes, and then figure out the features that they need to succeed. And alongside that, which use cases would require a premium version, right? And then you can use the same methodology to figure out your different tiers. So at Sneak, at the beginning, we weren't as thoughtful, but what we said was developers that are individually using Sneak should be able to use it for free. And we weren't quite as crisp on it, but we were saying, if you're a small team, you should also be able to use it for free. And if you're using open source, if you're using Snake for open source projects, those are free as well. So those things fell into the free tier. And then within the free tier, we do everything in our power to make them successful without paying. If you want to use Snake for a business, for governance, if you want to use it for a larger team or a larger volume of activity, a team of more than five people embedding Sneak into their ongoing work. If you want to have Sneak be a collaborative tool across a larger group of developers and security people, all of those things require you to move up to paying tiers. And when we launched, it was free for beta, and then we got thousands and then tens of thousands of developers using the product. And we launched a paid tier that was like, whatever it was, 50, 100 bucks a month to get going. And we turned that on and we expected some floodgates to open and Barely a trickle came through. Nobody bought. And it was really kind of around that time that we came to have that realization about the depth and breadth that I mentioned before, which is we built a product that was good enough, you know, was great even for individual developers to use, but we didn't appreciate the other use case, what it required. We didn't appreciate what would it need to get a security person to actually govern successfully with our product. Interestingly, fast forward four years, almost five years, we scrapped our online self-serve payment. So we have a freemium tier, but a sales-led sale. And then I think about nine months ago or so, we introduced a new tier that basically brought back this notion of a dev team being able to use the product, not just a security person, but a large enough dev team wanting to apply continuous security to it. And now it's amazingly successful. You can argue that it's the same functionality that we've had at the beginning. But I think what has happened more importantly is that the ecosystem has evolved. When we launched Sneak, the market was not ready for dev teams to decide to purchase even a smaller scope security tool to use. While five years later, the notion of continuous security has strengthened and now dev teams are much more often willing to own their security tool as well and to license Sneak to secure their code or their sort of open source usage or others. And then when you come to the needs to govern across the business, it comes back again to that governance capability and maybe sales touch that security sometimes needs. Yeah, you've talked previously about governance being the key to unlocking that commercial aspect for the security teams. What does that suggest in any way a different role going forward for security teams versus more traditional model? Now, like you said, the continuous security ecosystem is, is becoming more of the standard. All in all, I think if you're in the security industry, the future is pretty rosy for you, like it or not. Your job security is, is pretty high. 
I don't think that's going to change. What I believe will happen, and I'm actually kind of happy about, is that the security practitioners, especially in the application security space, they need to undergo a similar change to what has happened to DevOps, in which sysadmins that you know used to sort of patch servers themselves or close or open ports on, on systems, they've become DevOps engineers. They've become SREs. And they're role in the organization, their perceived value to the business is so much higher. Their job is so much more interesting. Instead of doing repeated grunt work, they're building systems, they're building platforms. Um, and so similarly, I think many security teams need to go from being the ones reviewing all the vulnerabilities and chasing some developers with constantly prioritizing this vulnerability is more important than the other. Instead, they should evolve to being platform builders, to building tools and capabilities that help developers actually build things securely from the get-go and to be experts for escalation points when an interesting problem comes along, right? When there's a more complicated conversation to be had. That's a very positive change. I do think that not everybody is well set up to make that transition. It does mean that the same skills that might have been required in the old world or present world, depending on where you are, might not cut it. I just want to shift a little to talk briefly about what in your mind have been the biggest challenges to scaling that you've had to overcome in the SNCC journey? I know you've talked before about product builds or market success not happening as fast as you had originally perhaps anticipated. You've talked about the key of a big vision, but maybe taking small steps to achieve that vision. First of all, I appreciate how you ask that question, which is what have been the challenges as opposed to, you know, what mistakes you've made or such, because I feel like Snick's journey has been amazing and has been constantly challenging. And I think that Snick is the result of these challenges and the decisions, the correct decisions made and the incorrect decisions made uh, together. There have been a bunch of challenges, but in many cases, it's not that I wish we didn't have that challenge. Sometimes knowing the solution ahead of time might have led me down the wrong path. So maybe I'll give you three different key challenges. The initial challenge that we had was really around breaking through from developer adoption to monetization. So it's that depth versus breadth that I mentioned or that realization. You know, we were two years into the company. We had tens of thousands of developers, maybe even more uh, using the product. And we had 100,000 in annual recurring revenue. Nobody was buying the product. And it felt like it has the potential of the classic pitfall of developer tools, which is oftentimes, you know, they are tools that developers are keen to use, but organizations are not keen to pay for. Right around there is when we properly cracked that sort of depth versus breadth. Um, and the primary lesson that came out of that was the need to constantly, on one hand, assess what is holding you back, but the importance of not losing conviction. The first year is the honeymoon period. The second year, there was this constant question of, can it be done? Can you actually build a developer-focused company that tackles security? Can you do a bottom-up enterprise security company? And we were pretty adamant that we would rather crash and burn than not successfully get to developers. And I think that helped. That conviction and the support from investors like Bold Start helped maintain it. And subsequently, the fact that we stayed true to that conviction is what fueled subsequent growth. The second challenge was the decision to go from a single product to a platform. We made a somewhat bold decision, or rather a decision that goes counter to common practice, which is we had a single product, Sneak Open Source, at the time it was just called Sneak, uh, that helped secure your use of open source components, whether to tell you if they're vulnerable or not. 
Um, and we decided to add a product around container security fairly early. There was a lot of debate about that because the playbook says, keep a single product and make it amazing and really own it. And the opportunity is always greater than you think. But Sneak was never really created to be an open source security company. It was created to be a developer security company. And we had the belief that by launching another product, by launching, say, a container security product, more people would want to use and would find more value in our open source product. Because part of the problem they're trying to address is the fact they have too many vendors. And so it was important for us to go to platform mode early, but it created a challenge around how do we, how do, we do that without distracting the core. The main thing that came out of that was a certain practice that we've since evolved around shipping add-on products, isolating them as much as we can. So just forming a team and having them build that secondary product with minimal distraction to the breadth of the company and then expanding them. Because we're dev first, we build them depth first. So we build narrow products and they don't have the breadth necessary to sort of stand on their own two feet right away. So they're sold as add-on. You have to have bought the original product to buy this product as well. Then we expand them over time until they're big enough. And we've done the same thing with our infrastructure as code products subsequently. And then I'd say the third challenge and slightly long answer here that is constant and is happening right now it's just the challenge of scaling. It's great that Snake is growing, but we've been roughly doubling and times tripling the size of the company every year. We've gone from 80 people to 240 people to 450 people to over 900 people in annual increments. And every time it's a different company. You have to constantly invest in maintaining culture and agility. You have to figure out how much do you centralize for consistency versus stay decentralized for agility. You know, you have to always assess leadership across all levels of the organization to see if the best person that you had for a 250 person company is also the right person to lead to that part of the company for a 500 person company or a thousand person company. Um, and so I think scaling is a massive challenge. It's a good challenge, but it's one not to be underestimated. If you do, then the company would collapse. I know the values and building a culture has been really important at SNCC. I wonder if you could just talk briefly about how you've approached that and made it an important part of the company. Sometimes people look down on sort of values exercises and things like that. And there are definitely a lot of corporations where the values are lip service. I think values are a powerful tool when you truly ensure that they represent the company and they are a little bit aspirational. At SNCC, we have four values that I think represent us well. The first is one team. That comes back to that us versus them. We're very, very keen to say that you succeed because you work with others, not you know at the expense of others. Very apolitical. It makes for a slightly messy organization. Sometimes people you know are able to work with anybody, but we don't have a compete to win type value. An engineer will get on a call at midnight, you know, with a salesperson to close a deal because we're one team. We work together, right? When there's a problem, we rally together, and that's true across regions, across departments. So I think that's been very, very important to maintain that. We had to do things like say no team would be co-located. We have this donut rotation of people having random casual sessions with people from other departments and other locations. We invested in all hands and small hands gathering that get together and then on partying together, but also working together on all sorts of workshops. So one team is very key. Care deeply is the second value and it represents caring for one another, caring for our customers, caring about our mission. Uh, SNCC is not a great place for a nice nine to five job uh, because it's a high intensity, high caring, 
and high satisfaction type place, but caring is key. And then, you know, the third is ship it. So it's really this notion that we don't know better than the world. We have a big vision. And as I mentioned, small steps, we know where we're headed, but we increment our way towards it. We work with customers hand in hand and we ship it. We don't sort of get paralyzed by analysis. And that really guides the speed of the company. And then last but not least is think bigger. That's just the most aspirational value that we have. And it's just the fact that every time as the company grows at such a rapid pace, the opportunity and the magnitude of the problem it just is always bigger than we thought. When you grow that fast, you don't want to build solutions that would last for six months and then you would have outgrown them. So I do think codifying values is very valuable. Those are ours. And then you want to live by them, you know, let go people. And we've done a fair bit of that that don't represent the values. You want to truly filter for those in the day to day. And you want to always look for ways in which the company can help scaffold that behavior through all sorts of like mechanisms, like the old hands I mentioned, like celebrations of shipping, like just repetition in events. It needs to be true to how you behave, not just how you say you behave. Right, right. And I assume there's even greater challenges when you are active in M&A, as you guys have been, particularly over the past year, with several acquisitions of CloudSkiff and Manifold, KeepCode. Yeah, absolutely. As far as M&A goes, we've built the company and we invest in keeping it as decentralized as we can and as modular as we can, especially in the R&D side, so that we can run independently, so we can build these different products. As I mentioned before, it's a constant exercise. Nothing is ever truly decoupled. Um, but this modularity supports the activity that we've had on the M&A front, in which mostly we acquire to accelerate. We knew we wanted to launch a SaaS product, static application security testing product. We had a thesis about what would make it dev first and how great it would be. And we found this great company called DeepCode. We acquired them to build this product uh, or to sort of beat the heart of this product. We immediately added people to them from other branches. We swarmed them with carrying and we adapted to ship it. So we shipped something integrated very, very quickly, even if it was still not charged for and we sort of iterated on it. I would say that every acquisition is an opportunity to learn. Every new person that you hire is an opportunity to learn. So you have to make sure you distinguish between scaling your culture and staying stale and homogenous. Diversity is really important. You want to add different locations. You want to add different backgrounds. And I think the importance of the term values is that they need to be at the core, but it's okay if some practices differ. It's okay if they come to fore differently. Every company that we've acquired, I think, has taught us and has evolved our culture. You know, whether it's deep code coming with a certain appreciation of machine learning and research, but also in some deeper and longer term thinking around technology, whether it's Manifold we acquired in Canada, who brought, you know, deep distributed systems expertise to us and a new approach to how we work with partners, whether it's FOSS ID that brought along a certain appreciation of older legacy technology for C++. There's DriftCTL just brought in a whole open source project that we sort of now run and collaborate with their communities. So we always seek in these acquisitions a culture fit, a values fit, but also something that we are inspired by, something that we learn from. On a personal note, you're now the president, obviously co-founder, and also the chairman of SNCC. Can you talk briefly about your decision to transition away from the founding CEO role to chairman? And how did you know that it was the right time to do that? How did you make that a success when you brought in Peter McKay as CEO? I would assume this is a tough decision and one that a lot of founding CEOs have to wrestle with. 
Certainly. I think it's an important perspective to share. The starting point is the understanding that just because something works doesn't mean it can't be better. And so there's a bit of a perception that if you're replacing the CEO or if you're replacing yourself as the CEO, it's because you think something is failing. And that definitely wasn't the case. So at the time, we were probably about 150 people. We were doing very well. We were very much at the hyper growth kind of early periods. And I think I was doing a pretty good job as CEO. But there were sort of two drivers or three that drove me to make this move. And to be clear, it was entirely my move and the board was supportive. I felt no pressure to do it. The first was the realization that my primary skill is I'm very good at seeing where the market is headed around maintaining and growing the product vision around driving strategy. I was not using it almost at all. My time was almost entirely consumed by scaling the company. And I wasn't able to bring this talent that I had and that the company needed to the forefront. I really like doing that type of stuff as well. So I wasn't able to do it, which gets me to the second point. It's not that I don't want to be a big company CEO. I want to build a big company, but there's nothing specific in my desires or, or such to be CEO. You know, it wasn't really my constant aspiration or such. I want to lead, but I've always made the distinction between leading and managing. You can be a leader without being a manager. And unfortunately, sometimes you can do the other, but it was important for me to be a leader, to grow my sphere of influence. I didn't necessarily want to be the boss or the manager on those paths. And then the last bit was the realization that if I find the right person, then the total can be greater than what we have today. So if I'm really good at the product vision piece, I think I could find someone who would be a better CEO than I would. That realization happened when Peter McKay was made available. You know, there was an opportunity and he had an unfair advantage there because I've known him for 15 years and he was on the board. And I'd encourage any technical founder, especially founders as a whole, to think, are you on this path just because you're unwilling to let go? or it's truly the path that you want. And then I think subsequently to make it successful, like 90% of it is trust and then 10% of it is communication. So for me, the key thing was spend a lot of time with the incoming CEO and subsequently after you do CEO, talk through things, don't let things fester. You're gonna annoy one another, that's inevitable in any partnership. Keep talking through it, spend the time, take the time to talk through things, surface things. And then you have to have deep trust. You have to appreciate that when someone does something, they're doing it for a good purpose. When someone's giving the other feedback, they're doing it for a good reason and trust that they can do the job. You know, as chairman, you always need to sort of supervise just like as CEO, you can semi argue that as chair, I'm somewhat his boss uh, and he is my boss as CEO in my role as president. Uh, but in practice, it's a partnership. And I think that really predicates on trust and on good communication. Interesting. Tactically, I'd recommend things like doing a 360 feedback to ensure that you're not confusing other exec team members about who's the authority on whom and to inform yourself when I was stepping on people's toes. You've talked before about folks focusing too much on cool product and tech and how it can be used as opposed to the real use case and persona, as well as the difference between building a product and technology versus building a company. And I'm just wondering if there's one or two other pieces of advice you would offer from your own experience to budding entrepreneurs that we haven't covered. One bit is more maybe for later on when you succeed, 
which is around giving back. I think fundamentally, as people working in the tech industry, we're very highly privileged. You know, this is the profession of the future. It is, you know, highly paid. It has great opportunities for value creation. And many people are not necessarily in that situation. And whether you throw in global warming or you talk about the growing economic gap between different layers or a variety of other problems, many people are far less fortunate. And I do think that it is very important for leaders of companies and specifically for founders, and especially as you think about what is the type of company that you're creating, to include in your values the support or the caring for the communities around you, for those who are less fortunate, and see how you can help those organizations. At SNCC, we've created the SNCC Impact program right now that follows the Salesforce-created Pledge 1% model, which pledges 1% of employee time and equity and product. So that's one model to do it, especially as you scale, focusing on giving a bunch of that time and equity for good, for social impact. At SNCC, we focus on diversity and inclusion in the development and in the DevSecOps community, and then mobilizing that security community, that DevSecOps community, to help nonprofits secure themselves and do good, as well as support for climate, which our organization, our employees are very passionate about. But whatever it is that your causes are, and whatever the format is, it's just important to remember that even when you're facing all sorts of challenges and all sorts of risks, at the end of the day, we're in the privileged slice of society, and we should not forget those that aren't. Right, right. I can imagine that it's easy to get tunnel vision when you're building a company in such a fast-moving space as tech, right? It's great to have that singular focus, but I would think it can make you vulnerable to exactly yep. ignoring or not even realizing you're ignoring the broader world around you. Yep, precisely. Lastly, I just want to ask you guys, when you look at the secure DevOps space, how do you see that evolving over the next decade? And how do you see SNCC evolving over the next decade within that? The security industry needs to go by the way of the DevOps path, which is security teams need to become platform builders and need to become enablers that succeed by helping developers secure what they build as they build it. Another change that will happen to the whole world of technology, I believe, would be just this growth of software is eating the world. And when software is the world, software security will eat the security world. So I think more and more security needs and security risks will be addressed through software security solutions, whether it's cloud, whether it's data, uh, whether it's you know third-party relationships, all of those today are increasingly written as code. And from SNCC's perspective, we're here to really be that software security solution that spans those different communities of developers, whether it's low-code, no-code developers, or mobile developers, or deep backend developers, or crypto developers, or types of developers that we don't know to name yet. Uh, I think all of those would need software security solutions. But more importantly, I think this is a vast problem, and I don't think we can solve it alone. And I'm especially excited as Snake evolves to becoming a platform. We have our Snake Apps uh, platform that we've recently launched, and what I I'm keen to see Sneak grow into is a platform that helps solve that depth versus breadth problem that security tools and developer tools holds today uh, and be a place that startups can go and build a company on top of Sneak, be able to build their piece of the puzzle to help another group of developers or another type of risk, whether it's small scale or large scale, uh, be successful and build secure software. So that to me is the most exciting part of the journey. 
That's great. And just as a quick follow-up, is there anything in particular that keeps you up at night in terms of longer term concerns or worries about the future? I think the market opportunity that Sneak has in our position in the market right now are great. So what I lose sleep over, what I focus my attention on is almost entirely internal execution. It's to ensure that we keep hiring the right people, that we keep staying aligned, that we keep scaling and evolving our culture as we grow it. And I think if we have the right people and we work well together in this great market opportunity, good things will happen. Right. So the organizational challenges, they never go away as you keep building, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I believe that if you're comfortable, you're not growing. I think both as an individual, as in our organization, I want to always grow. I want to always be improving. Uh, and so we're not seeking kind of a comfortable, cushy type surrounding for the company. I'm not aspiring to that. I think we'll always seek to do things that are at the edge of our ability. And I think that's what would help us grow and get better over time. That's oftentimes one of the hallmarks of the best companies. Well, listen, Guy, this has been a great conversation. So I just really want to thank you so much for joining us and talking in such depth and breath about all these aspects of SNCC's journey. My pleasure. Thanks for having me and happy to, to pay some of these learnings forward. That's the end of our pod for today. Thanks again to Guy Pajarni, co-founder, chairman, and president of SNCC for speaking with us. A big thanks also to our McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Katie Znamorowski. And finally, thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again for McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.